Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, hey, hello, leavers, believers, and anybody else passing through on Australia's Labor Day. Today is Monday the 3rd of October, and it's another long weekend for Australians, which is always a good thing. My name's Tanya, and you have found your way to leaving Hillsong, which is fantastic. If you're here for the first time, welcome, welcome. And if you're one of our regular crew, This is a very different interview. This is quite a lovely, relaxed, peaceful conversation from a very wise man. I've known Lindsay Duncan for a while now, and I knew he was writing over the last couple of years, but suddenly this book arrived and we decided to sit down and talk about it, which, given that it's very largely informed by some of his experiences himself, in an Assemblies of God church or Pentecostal or whatever. I'm not really good with all the different differentiations. But Lindsay spent 14 years there and then things changed. This discussion turned out to be really cool on a number of levels. We talked a lot about the writing process and Lindsay offered a lot of insights into that. He's a psychologist. Uh, He's a former part owner of a church. There are some interesting twists in this one. Can't give you any spoilers. You'll see. And I think this conversation is more 
one cup of tea. Grab your snacks. I hope you really enjoy A Bit Tricky to Deal With with Lindsay Duncan. Oh, and don't forget to stick around to the end because there's a book giveaway too. Hi, Lindsay. Hi, Tanya. Good to hear your voice. Nice to hear your voice. Thanks so much for joining us here at Leaving Hillsong. You've had some good programs, some good podcasts, haven't you? It's been, it has been such an interesting journey. And, I mean, you're the psychologist. You must have, like, you must perceive this with a, a, a number of lenses, I'm guessing. Yeah, I'm sort of really interested in the amount of damage people suffer from, you know, being in churches like that and leaving and what happens afterwards. I mean, we're about to jump into your story, but just while you say that, what has struck me over the, the time I've been doing the last 15, 20 years is how much deeper, stronger and, you know, more severe this impact is than I, I would have imagined because it's, it's not tangible necessarily. There's nothing to see, but it really impacts people. It, it, what is, what is, I mean, what do you see? My journey is pre-Hillsong, and I, I'm seeing a difference in the nature of the churches. That's interesting, but the damage is still the same. People get dumped. It's like when people go to those experiential weekends of, you know, discover yourself. If it's not handled well and they just get left high and dry, they suffer and they come out worse at the other end. And mm. I think churches can be like that. Mm. People are looking for something and they go in mm. and they get their hopes up and then they're dashed and they, they're just left to rot. So that's a bit sad. It's it's absolutely brutal. So I guess we can combine those paths. Hey, I mean, you've been a psychologist. It's 30 plus years, yes. So you've uh, seen and earned it all, I'm guessing? Nothing new under the sun. <laughs> <laughs> people oh. are people. And... Uh, this book has just come out as well and, you know, I'm not really about promoting one thing or another, but I've been compelled by your writing and your fictional account of of a young man, you know, in a, in a difficult home and in an evangelical church and it's such great writing and, you know, we'll, angles we're coming from here and you're... Um, not the the average uh, demographic. I mean, take us back. Come on, take us back because you you hit me with the number nineteen sixty nine yesterday, which is you know, yeah, people are beginning to forget you know last year. So, so tell us how you wound up in the church and okay. face with that founder of Hillsong. I I joined a little house meeting that had just started in Port Kimber. Uh, my mother had been going for a couple of weeks and she was pestering me to go. So in the end, I went because I was a bit of a lost 23-year-old. And I sort of found some people who liked me and I found a sense of belonging almost straight away. See, that's interesting. That's quite late in the piece, isn't it? Because it's usually a teenage kind of thing or a, a, a transitional stage we find. You know, people are at college or university and questioning things and and find a new group with values it, was there something like that going on yeah and look i i chucked in the methodist church at 16 when i had been through it all my life but i kept looking i looked at buddhism and rosicrucianism and scientology and all those things so i was looking and this thing just somehow grabbed me 
and uh, I liked it. Mm -hmm. The fellow that started the church was Pastor Bill Beard, lovely guy, sincere, basic, very honest. And that was the mood he set up in the church that became the, the Lighthouse Christian Centre. And he never varied from his values. Mm -hmm. I guess in my 14 years in the church, I was never upset by things the church did as, as an organisation. Okay. And when I left, I, I sort of got a bit disappointed, a bit disheartened. But we'll come to that later on. So this was a little house meeting in Port Kimberley, maybe 10 people. It grew to a church of maybe 500 by the time I left. I was quickly knitted in as part of the team because I had a psychology degree in making. I was a counsellor. I became a, a trustee of the church, a one-fifth owner of the property they bought. And it, it just, you know, I was in charge of the music, in charge of the young people. I was preaching and doing all that ministry stuff. I was God's man of faith and power. And it, look, it, it satisfied me because I was really sort of, I found myself. And look, it went well. The point that really is of importance now is I joined in July. In December, the Christmas camp was on at Lake Munmora, Elizabeth Bay. Okay. It was an AOG camp, and Bill Beard had come from the Central Coast, so it was naturally linked into that group up there. And the head speaker, the man of the moment, was Frank Houston. Ah, royalty. And he was still in New Zealand at the time, but he was brought over here to run this camp. It was a big camp, a lot of young people, and uh, I think on the first night he's doing his deliverance ministries, casting out demons. And, of course, I wanted to go forward and get fixed up, whatever that was. So here is he busily casting out the demons of homosexuality from my life. Yeah. At, down at the altar? or, or... At the altar, in public, in front oh. of, you know, the, lots and lots of us went forward to get, you know, delivered. And what, did the demons go? Like, did you, what happened? Oh, yeah, everyone fell over and everyone screamed or vomited or yelled or cried. Had you seen anything like that before? A bit of it in my own church back in Wollongong before it, you know, before the camp, because in those days it was big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I reckon there might have been 20 or 40 people out the front of this church with Frank Hurston. Because, I mean, I, I never actually spent any time in the presence of Frank, as luck would have it. So I don't, but I hear he was a very powerful speaker. He was a great speaker, and that was the only time I spent a lot of time in his presence in that week of the church camp. Oh, that's, not, that's enough, yeah. I saw him preach subsequently at various things. But, yeah, my point there is that was the time he was also doing what he's been accused of since then, mm. which Brian Houston is now sort of having to battle with, the stuff that was covered up. So I guess, you know, that, I mean, that let's let's name it. Didn't become an issue for me. So this is at the end of 1969. Christmas 69, yeah. Yeah, and he was, as far as we're aware, offending against young boys sexually at the time. I mean, yeah. no one knows the extent, really, yeah. or ever will. Yeah. But in Australia, they were the ones. That was the yeah. time, yeah. Yeah. And our respect well, goes out to those victims, hey? Yeah. Look, I, I knew about that. I'd been abused as a kid for 10 years from the age of five uh, by a, a family member, a male. 
you know, maybe 15 years older than me. You know, so I know the damage. But the church was fantastic. It gave me a family. It gave me society. Yeah. It gave me, you know, right. position. And it went really, really well for those 14 years I was there. What happened in the what, church? Sorry, was, sorry, what do you mean by it went really well? Because for me, yeah. it was it was good. As we discussed yesterday, the, the the basic framework of this podcast leaves it open for people to say, yeah, I had a good time, things went well, and since I've left, you know, this is what happened to me. So there's obviously a lot of positive and good experiences people have had along the way, or this wouldn't be difficult. If it was just a raging inferno, people would flee. And there's obviously good times to be had so that's i mean that's a long time 14 years yeah and the sense of belonging was important yeah how were you involved how much were you involved oh totally mm -hmm. there, there were midweek meetings there was mm -hmm. friday night youth group there was sunday two services on sunday and i was at the top of all of those things and um mm -hmm. it, it was a very satisfying time and i guess the issue for me now is the difference in the nature of the church then and the difference in the churches that are around now. Yeah, it was very simple, innocent, sincere, honest. The emphasis was on teaching. Yes. yes. Yeah, Bill B was the salt of the earth sort of guy. Uh, yeah, pastors were appointed and they were just in-house trained. Mm -hmm. They weren't admitted by a Bible school. Those days, yeah. And it was, but it wasn't greedy or showy. Sure, we, we were taught about tithing, we all tithed, but it wasn't a money-focused organisation the way that we hear about some of the mega churches that have formed since then. Was there a time when you noticed that shift in ideology or theology or was that a bit before? Look, at that time it was pretty much what was experienced in Australia, I think, in all the churches. The big American televangelists were coming out around about then so you start to see a difference in, in emphasis. And that's interesting too, because we really only hear about Frank having reached his tentacles over about the mid-70s. So seven, yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting, yeah. that he. I mean, he'd, he'd had mates here and it was all kind of set up for a couple of years. They'd been encouraging him. The history is so hard. That's why conversations like this are so valuable, because we don't have much history recorded uh, i i think i mean i was very involved in in that church but also other churches in in sydney i was going to visit them and we had camps together and things like that but the crunch came for me at 35 when i decided i was actually gay and came okay. out to myself okay what do you mean you decided because that's not gonna go down a treat um, <laughs> I, I, I was, I was yeah. challenged by someone asking uh, in, a, in a pastor's training meeting, what did I think about the gay question? And I said, look, I don't have all the answers on that one. But that got me thinking, well, what do you really think? Mm. And um, I started to investigate my, my sexuality and my, my views on what, what was right for me rather than being contained by this religious church uh, hothouse that I was mm. in. Mm. And I sort of, you know, surprised myself. So when I mean, you I, were you were married at this point. I was married with a four-year-old child. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a good marriage. It was, you know, fantastic in all sorts of ways. We were, but we met in the church. Mm -hmm. But the minute the church got wind of that, they formally 
excommunicated me. Oh, okay. I, I had to sign a form, and I think that was more to do with the fact that I had a fifth of the property in my name as a trustee. Right. But the really big sad thing from that was when they dumped me, they also dumped my wife and child. These relationship breakdowns, these, uh, what, sorry, did they not, they usually kind of have that divide and conquer thing where they'll take the surprised spouse under their wing and, and that didn't happen. I mean, had you, what kind of formal announcement did you make as well? Like I, what had you done to be excommunicated? I had met a man and they heard about it. And right, right. So they drew conclusions. So I went off for some counselling and, of course, the counselling was the preliminaries of the ex, ex-gay stuff that's around now. Mm. I mean, it was absolute garbage. The, the person that tried to sort of counsel me was using other, I know more than you do about this. What do you mean, sorry? Oh, uh, look, it, it was was really silly religious sort of counselling that I could deny my sexuality and God would heal me. Right. And and it would all go away. And I thought, well, that's not going to happen. I'd wrestled with it a little bit already by then. Yeah. I, uh, it, it, it just, I mean, you're a psychologist, you're married with a child, and what you hadn't had the awareness before. I'm just wondering how does that happen? Look, as an adolescent, yeah, there was all that peer stuff that went on. Nothing until then, until 35. Hadn't crossed your mind? It crossed my mind, but I I just repressed it all. Okay. I'd prayed it away, you know. I hope you don't mind me. I'm going to be telling people that you're in your late 70s or mid-70s. I'm 76 next month, yeah, that's right. You know what you're talking about. And, I mean, those were very different times as well. There wouldn't have been any room to to breathe with that in the church, hey, or anywhere really much. But there wasn't any tolerance for, for anything that was mm. a bit a bit tricky to deal with. Uh, there was, a, you know, a lot of denial went on. And one interesting thing was in 1974, so I've been in the church for, you know, a little while by then, there was a young man dumped on our doorstep. We were, we were trying anything. We were big on rehabilitation, we thought. That's what I wanted to do. The young man was drunk, dumped on the door, overdosed, didn't know who he was. He smelled like a polecat. And I sat with him for three days until he sort of came out of his his drugged state. Mm. And he was in the church for quite a while, and I was very close to him. And then he disappeared in my clothes mm. and went to the Blue Mountains and murdered someone. Oh, Oh. And that was Rodney Mallard, Rodney Cameron, who went on to murder four people altogether. Oh. But, you know, we were naive in that we thought we could help him. He, you right. know, this, this is a guy who's damaged from his childhood, you know. But, yeah, we would, we'd take anything on because we thought this is what God wanted us to do. It was a pretty active church in a whole lot of ways. When you say they dumped your wife and child, what ended up happening with them? What, what, what followed for them? Oh, they left and went to the Anglican Church where they got instant support. Nobody ever inquired about my well-being once I was gone. Mm. Not that I cared too much at the time because I was pretty bitter. Well. So, And I went from the church to a relationship, which I'm still in. You know, I'm married to that man now, 40 years later. And, you know, my, my ex-wife and child are certainly part of our life, you know, integrated. Oh, lovely. Lovely. Congratulations on your very recent marriage, actually. It's, it's you know, one of those stories. Yeah, some boys do it. But this, you know, the the way I saw people who 
were too difficult, handled, was a bit sad with hindsight. And they, they may do it better now. Look, I went back to the church five years after I'd left for my father's funeral yeah. and then, then 12 years later my mother's funeral. But in both of those events, they turned it into a full-on evangelical service. And by that stage, there were a couple of pastors who I thought, how the hell did you become pastors with no training? Well, um, and they were running the show, and I thought, oh, dear, that's, that's, I'm glad I'm not around here now. So, you know, the, it was fairly poor taste, the funeral service. They, they were preaching at me, and uh, I just sang the songs for my parents and left, and that was that, you know. That's, um, that's another common theme is that they really do go beyond the grave and take over at people's funerals, and, you know, it's it's... Well, they did what they thought was the right thing to do, but I knew from the outside it wasn't the way to handle a challenge like that, you know. With your parents, are those the funerals they had wanted? Oh, yeah, they were very involved in the church. My father gave lots of money to the church and uh, they were dedicated members from the time they joined until they died. And how did they handle your uh, tricky situation? Oh... <laughs> oh, okay. My, my father made us all audio cassettes before he died. He knew he was dying of Parkinson's disease. And uh, my cassette said, Lindsay, the gay life is not of God. Repent. And my mother said, Would you like to keep that tape? And I said, No, you can have it, Mum. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I look, I told I told them, I went straight to them and told them what had gone on. And and I told them about my sexual abuse as a child. And yeah, and my mother said, "Ah, is that why you wouldn't let that person babysit your young brother?" And I said, "That's oh. exactly right." So she'd remembered that and stayed oh. in her mind. My brother was twelve years younger than me, but I was aware that I was going to protect him from this pedophile who'd been my babysitter. So uh, they, they, dad never got over it. Mum, before she died, was forgiving, stopped grinding her axes. She was good in the end but it was hard for them both. I was going to say that sounds as kind of reasonable as you can get with evangelicalism, but it's still heartbreaking, I understand. It's, well, I think even today it's just as hard for kids to come out to their families as it was then. Okay. Tell me there's what... a lot more information, like there's Home and Away and all those TV shows, and, and kids talk about it, but families are still unforgiving and, and you know, very ready to chuck their kids out for being gay or trans or anything else different right now. So. It's incredible. I have a neighbour who is now about 40 and he tells me that he spent his entire 20s single because he didn't want to be gay. He didn't want to be part of what was so hated in the world. And this is outside of a church experience. You know, that's without that at all. So it's it's so strong. And yet all I can think when you're telling me this is, did you have to confess crimes to your parents? You know, did you have to tell them you'd stolen something or murdered something? It's, it's just incredible. Mm, mm. It's uh, singling out, yeah. Sexual, sexual sin in whatever form is, is, you know, still treated very differently to anything else by our society. Well, I mean, was that your mother's only response to the abuse disclosure as well? Just the... They dealt with it in their own way. but yeah, I'm so know. sorry. Yeah, well, it's part of my growing up, wasn't it, eventually? So. 
Well, you know, and it's the responses that often shape us as well. That's all. Um, yeah. So, look, I wrote a book during COVID when lockdown happened. I thought, ah, oh, I might just start back on that book I wrote a couple, I started a couple of years ago. When I got it out, it was 14 years ago. Mm. And there, I had 20,000 words of draft there, and, and I'm sure none of that ended up in the final book, but it got me going. And uh, the book, was really written in response to the things that were happening around child abuse because I was dealing with it all the time as a psychologist. And a lot of it was from people who'd been through churches. I don't necessarily mean abuse within the church only, mm -hmm. but I had a lot of Catholic kids and people who'd been to orphanages and people who'd been solid generations and things like that. And I thought, wow, this is yeah, really nasty stuff, as we know. So the book I wrote is a fiction. It's not a biography. It's not a memoir, but of course it draws on my life. Absolutely. But it draws on the life of clients I've treated over the years, case studies I've read, case studies I've come across. So people are going to sort of jump to the conclusion that my book, which is called Becoming Ben, From God to Gay. It's it's a confronting book. There are some, yeah, I mean, there. it's not for the faint-hearted, it covers a young man's journey confronting his own sexuality in an abusive home and, you know, it doesn't start gently. So, you know, I said to you just recently, you know, how much of you is Ben? Because the, the writing is so compelling and so close to experience that, yeah. Uh, I thought about that question a lot because you've asked it and other people have asked me the same. Is this autobiographical? And I've got to say, no, it's not. And the characters I've created in the book are composites of a range of things I've come across in, in my professional life and my personal life. So sure, you know, Ben was abused as a child, so was I. He was bullied at school. We were both you know, creative, misfit kids. God, I lived in Port Kemper and played the violin. You know, had a bit of a target. Uh, religious families found our place in a church where it felt sort of comfortable-ish, but unsure of sexuality issues, things like that. So, yeah, sure, he's, he's modelled on parts of my life, but not just me. So you're not going to be able to identify any character and say, ah, that is so-and-so. Uh, no, it's, it's very clever. Tell me why you felt compelled to get this thing out. I, I had a previous book, which was a therapy book, not a, a fiction. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And there was a lot of case studies in that. And people often said, gee, those case studies are really helpful to read because I get to identify with them. So I guess when I first started writing this book, you know, all those years back, it was a fiction based on case studies. It has a lot to do with adoption. And adoption for me has always been okay. intriguing that it leaves people with a great big hole in their gut, not it knowing does. who they are and where they belong. Yeah. That was the beginning of the book, based around a client I had who found out she was adopted as an adult. And I've got quite a few friends who are in that situation. And they've all got these holes in their guts that say, where do I belong? Who am I? Why was I rejected by my, my mother? Some people certainly, I mean, some people doesn't seem to bother them at all. And yet some people can grow up in the most supportive, loving, adoptive homes. And it, it, that hole you're talking about never seems to be filled, hey? So... Yeah, and they try really hard to prove themselves worthy all their lives by doing yet another degree or mm. starting another charity or helping or having lots of babies even, you know. Anyway, that, that was the beginning of the book. I guess I wrote it because I wanted to write. And this is the way it happened. I'm, I'm a, a writer who sits down and writes and whatever turns out sort of becomes the, the focus of the, the writing at the moment. But, you know, I think I, I wanted to respond to the abuse in the church that we're hearing about in Hillsong, that we're hearing mm -hmm. about in the Catholic Church, that we're hearing about in orphanages. And the church just seemed to be sort of the right place for me to write at the time. I mean, tell us, what do you see as someone who's been through it and a psychologist all these years? What is this thing? I mean, what do you make of these churches? I think wherever there's power, there's the opportunity for abuse of that power. And yet you tell us that for 14 years that didn't seem to happen where you were until, I mean, that power was challenged, but there must have been other situations along the way where there were challenges and, and conflicts and things in your 14 years and yet that power was managed differently, is that? Sure, I think I saw exploitation. Um, I didn't see any sexual exploitation within the church that I belonged. Yeah, but no financial abuses or power Yeah, coups. there's, there's a, a bit of, you know, people who had money were probably treated a little bit more favourably. You know, if you're a doctor and you're a member of the church, you got sort of oh. given an opportunity to sort of be the speaker or the preacher, you know. Whereas if you were a run-of-the-mill person, you may not have got the same privilege. And I'm guessing that I do know of other church setups at the time I was involved where there was exploitation of people within the church. There were certainly situations I knew of where people running an organisation took advantage of the people that they were caring for or supervising or working. Yeah. Because, look, I found with running the young people's group, I was counselling all the time on things that people did, couldn't handle any other way. I actually had a, a bit of a nervous breakdown because I over-counseled. I was so so involved unhealthily that I didn't see myself getting sucked into the, the exhaustion and the, the burnout. Right. 
Because they must have gone, oh, psychologist, good, do some counselling, off you go. Yeah, and, and of course I was willing to do it because I was so keen to help people. Yeah, it's a bit, yeah. It's a bit more measured now. I sort of say, yeah, okay, there's a problem. It doesn't mean I've got to fix it. Whereas in well, those days I had to fix it. Isn't that kind of a lot? A big part of the foundation of the place is young people who want to make the world a better place. People are drawn to churches because they see there's some possible help. Yeah. And yeah. once there's a power imbalance of a helper and a helpee, there's the chance for abuse of the boundaries. And that's not just sexual. I'm wondering what impacts, if any, you see looking back from that uh, Christmas camp. You talk of it in passing about, you know, exorcisms. These can have profound lifelong effects on people at an altar call there. Before your time, there was the Billy Graham Crusades. Yes. And they were magnetic, mass hypnosis, mass crowd behaviour sort of situations mm -hmm. where you know, it wasn't necessarily all God. There's mm -hmm. a, lot of, a lot of clever psychology in all of those. Goodness um, me, Billy Graham, how could you? Yes. But, I mean, that was the beginning of Australia becoming aware of Christianity. Okay. You know, just as I am without one please sort of that, that hymn that used to be sung all the time, that was used well and truly by the Penties as well later on, the same method of altar calls and altar calls that, you know, where people were slain in the spirit and all of that stuff. Well, just from the recent Tom Tilly interview, his church didn't have all of that stuff. And I, I, I believe at Hillsong there's no public, exorcisms and things like that not anymore not anymore but and you know tom tilly was saying no hands in the air our church was you know singing dancing hands in the air yelling screaming yeah i mean if you don't what's with you churches are still magnets of people that have needs and music is a very easy mm. recipe for sort of thinking people have won something i i once called into Picked my daughter up from a concert in Sydney at the you know, one of those entertainment centre places. It was very loud. And we got back early to pick her up and, and the woman said, oh, come in. And I couldn't believe how much it was like church. Mm. Was that Canadian male singer, Brian Adams? I think Brian Adams. And it was, was loud, but it got to me. It had the same effect in my chest bones as being in a church service where there's good music. Very and another nice. similar time was when I was in Thailand in a temple and they were hitting their great big gongs and it reverberated down that same part of your chest and it got right inside you. So music is mm. more than just, you know, a sound or a noise. And I once, <clears throat> there was once a very sincere person in the church he was a nice man i quite like him he's a bit older than me and he said it's really embarrassing he said when i listen to maria carlos the opera singer sing he said it's almost like having an orgasm is that a sin and i thought yeah well see the body can only respond in a, in a certain number of ways yeah true but if people feel love in, okay. of any sort they melt and this is where the, the misplacement of all that hugging that went on in the church, I love you, brother, you know, I love you, sister, turn to the brother next to you and tell them you love them and give them a hug. And I saw so many hugs that were just a little bit more than hugs. Okay. And there was the mixture of agape, eros, and filio love. 
And I saw some agape turning into phileo a little bit. And I thought, oh, that's a bit dangerous to play with. It's like getting drunk at the office party. Well, there's no, um, there's no guidance on what that love means, is there? Like when you turn to that stranger next to you that you're sitting next to in a rock concert situation, yeah. the music coming and the, and the upbeat scene and, and that feeling of belonging to and community. Look, if you just put your hand on someone's back or arm or reassure them in some way and they're in a vulnerable situation, they're going to melt into your, your energy. Yeah, yeah. And that's not wrong, but it can be so easily misused or crossed over on the boundary to become something else that they see that as being romantic love or spiritual love or God or something like that. And I just think within churches where people feel they belong, some of the messages are mixed. So vague and it's so open to individual interpretation. I'm not surprised a lot of it goes so wrong. And it occurs to me that the very physicality of that place, the laying on of hands, you know, the real physical interaction would have to erode boundaries and, you know, lead people open to physical exploitation, whatever that is, just not like it is in, say, a traditional denomination where people have personal space. And it's already a hero worship situation Mm. because the man or the woman, usually the man out the front is sort of a messenger of God and therefore they're really, it's like when a client comes to me, they're vulnerable. They see me as the psychologist who has all the answers. Yeah. You go to a church, it's the yeah. same thing. People have a need and they think, oh, here's my answer. They want me. They love me. They tell me I'm, you know, I'm good. But as a mm. professional, you're aware of that and your power in that role and transference and all those kinds of things where, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of the time these people don't know or don't care or they know and use it for more sinister, you know, activities. It's Well, I refer back to some of those weekend experiences where people go for self-improvement and they are cult-like in nature. Yeah. There's a guru and there's all those other gurus and they fall into that power, that, that apparent being wanted and respected and, and told, you're fantastic, you're going to mm-hmm. go a long way for God. Mm-hmm. I can remember seeing preachers who were young and dressed very provocatively and for me who had a a bit of a sort of a confused view of where sexuality was these guys were very very attractive people they became heroes that people sort of swooned after and followed but you know there's one guy used to wear it was just so revealing yeah well the whole place is very sexualized as well and I mean, it it just looks like such a ripe field for harvesting kind of vulnerable people, hey? Especially young people who are impressionable teenagers or trying to find their values. They're they're sort of ripe for the picking. What do we do? Because people are searching for that thing. They seem to want to flock to a hero or a guru or, and I must say I'm a little bit um, suspicious of that, emphasis on retreats these days why have we got to go and take people out somewhere remote there's obviously something missing in the community that people need to be a part of so if not churches what do we do 
We join multi-level marketing company. We join meditation groups. There's a lot of things you can belong to. And the sense of belonging is what we're after. Yeah. But how that's misappropriated is, you know, not always clear at the beginning. I mean, there's a lot of people that have some community and some family, but they're still drawn to these places and wanting to be a part of something bigger than yourself. I'm just, you know, I'm wondering if any of this is going to be preventable. How do we ever fill these gaps in the community if you don't uh, threaten people with hell, dangle the carrot of heaven? It's just going to keep going, right? Like, Well, churches have always done that, I suppose, haven't they? They've had power that's through the, the mystique of, of a god or a, a devil or an angel. How could I put this weekend the football's been on? Mm. And that's absolutely cult-like. Oh. And and the mass behaviour, I mean, you, you sort of see all the, the hero worship of the, the players on the field and, and yeah. the amount of hugging they do is legitimised because that's what society does. So belonging is important to all of us and we'll find that we're, we'll either join a gang at school or we'll join a club or we'll, we'll you know, do something, you know, those things people do to belong. I read recently about young guys that join gangs are looking for the same things pretty much as youth groups like there's status there's brotherhood there's opportunities there's you know loyalty and belonging mm. and they seem to wind up 25 years later 30 years later just like these pastors do who've given their all and you know get spat out at some point and end up with not a lot this morning about brian's latest sermons in america how they're being worded about your mistakes don't define who you are and what you leave is the legacy. Yeah, tell it to the judge, Brian. He's framing his words to manipulate his, his congregation already, not already still. It's it's so constant and flagrant and blatant and I mean, we're so much more aware of it and I don't know how he doesn't know that people know now. But I guess yeah. it doesn't matter. There's still more people who don't know. I, I, and he's selling his house for $4.5 million. Which, you know, in Sydney will get you a garage and, you know, maybe a rusty old basketball hoop. But... Looked like a good garage to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just nothing compared to his international friends. Tell me more about why you wrote the book and what you're hoping gets out there with these messages. It's, it's not so much a message book, it's a story. But people who've read it who said, I couldn't put it down, it took me two days. I just, or others saying, I've got to keep putting it down because it's just too triggering. Yeah. It's confronting. Yeah. I mean, you, you've sort of, you know, the beginning is confronting, but the story goes on. There's you know, mm. 115,000 words. It's not all about, you know, mm. um, I just hope people enjoy reading it. I wrote it because I was compelled to write. Mm. The reason I chose that topic is because I was so concerned about what was around in terms of abuse and people being betrayed by churches and institutions. You know, I could just as well have written it about a girl in a girls' school. Mm. So, look, when you write a book, you choose a topic and you, and you can't tell the history of the world in one book. You, you choose a, a family or a you know, a group or a church or a city uh, or a village. And that's kind of sort of what I did. 
I guess I, I am talking about hope because most kids, when they're abused as children, lose their way, they lose their value, and it becomes so hopeless, they suicide. Yeah. This, this is yeah. a story about a young man who does find his way and there is a nice outcome at the end where he thinks, God, there is really genuine love out there. There's not just abuse. Yeah, wonderful. But in the end, he finds his way. He finds about his self-discovery. As we do, we learn through, through suffering. We learn through adversity. And I guess this is a story of success because through the adversity, he came at the other end a person who knew himself and loved himself. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a nice story in that way. Yeah, wonderful. We do love a story of hope. Yeah, and when I was writing it, I thought this is all a bit grim, but it was grim because it, I guess it showed how people do live and who people who do succeed. Like I see these guys like Kurt Fernley who got successful lives, people that sort of are damaged in some accidents and they, they learn to become an Olympic shot putter or something. They're, they're wonderful stories because the general feeling would be, I'll just give up. But to sort yeah. of yeah. see people who succeed in spite of and, and because of their disadvantage, it's wonderful sort of encouraging something on your down days. You think, well, okay. Advice, guidance, tips for, you know, what people can do who are struggling with not just coming out of the closet but, you know, wrestling with identity and some of whom might be stuck in a church or just left a church and, you know, who am I in? Don't be afraid to ask questions. Mm. Don't um, just accept, don't just swallow the package, don't just buy the brand as I did. You know, have the guts to sort of say, well, what if I don't do that? Or what if, what is this really giving to me? What's, what am I getting out of it? There are people well, like my mother who just swallowed everything that came from the pulpit. It was true. Mm. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's not always. I, I used to, I was saying to her after I back, I was a big backslider, of course, in her eyes. When I said, all those things I used to call miracles still happen to me. And I'm an outcast, so where's that coming from? She said, it's because I pray for you. You're right. And in the end, I say, Mum, if you don't stop praying at me, I won't come and visit you anymore. <laughs> because, you know, she, she bought the message and put the blinkers on, and that's where she went, headed for the finishing line. And, you know, knowing when she was, when she was dying, she knew where she was going and she was going to meet Dad and she was going to heaven and all this stuff. Well, it's just nice to have that. May not be true. Where's your faith at now? Oh, non-existent in terms of God. Okay. I would call myself an atheist now. Okay. Because there are things we don't know, we don't understand. I look at nature and I'm still obstinate. Yeah. I think, wow, this yeah. is so beautiful and so wonderful. But I don't have to these days attribute it to a God who made it. Mm. And that took me a long time to get over. Mm. the damage of my loss of belief. I went to Europe with my partner for the first time in the year after I left the church, and there was a huge mass in the Liverpool Cathedral. There was a big pageant, and I had to leave. I couldn't stand it. I said, oh, all this phony religious stuff, you know. 
now I would uh, be able to look at it as pure theatre and say, wow, people love ceremony. Yeah. Look at the Queen's funeral the other yeah. day. People love all that pageantry stuff. Incredible. I mean, if we ever wanted to understand the world we live in, the, the, the Queen's funeral and, and her death has been just incredible. But people have been so happy to line the streets and wait for hours and all those kinds of things that I thought were kind of last century. All of that religious conditioning doesn't ever leave you. You can take the girl out of the Catholic Church, you can't take the Catholic Church out of the girl. Really? Train a child up in the way you should go? Yeah, religious guilt is so binding. What do you think that is? Is that from the hypnosis? Like why, why is it so strong? The impact is so strong. Well, I think it's years of accepting a belief that you, you want to be true and therefore you do put the blinkers on. But, yeah, the hypnotic side, the mass hysteria side is pretty powerful. But I just think you never lose that sense of God looking over your shoulder. As much as you move away from it, it still becomes the standard by which you measure your deviation. It's a tricky psychology area to work in, but I just think, as you said, train a child under the age of five and yeah, you've got him forever. You've been wonderful. <laughs> what are you writing next? I've written about 35,000 words of the next book. What's that? Well, it started out about a, a dysfunctional family, hmm. but then as I wrote it, sort of needed another character and I've now got this woman who's the local post master who's a gossip and knows everyone's business oh i like it she's become a a large part of the, i mean the whole novel might change now it started with the tragedy of a seven-year-old kid being run over by a tractor on his father's farm and how the family all fell apart and how they each found a way back to being functional again that was the beginning but now that's the middle wow wow and it's such an inspiration because you know you read these headlines going, I'm 25 and I haven't succeeded yet. Should I keep going? Here you are. You've just had a book published at 76 years old. It's just come out in the last couple of weeks. Becoming Ben from God to Gay. That should be a big enough warning as well to people. They'll keep it under the bed, trust me, and read it with the torch late at night. It's wonderful. I'm not Congratulations. Sure. My, my grandchildren are very keen to read my book. And I thought, yeah. oh, it's not quite kiddies stuff. Yeah, no, maybe, yeah, maybe not yet. But it's, it is a great read. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Thank you for hey. your time and wisdom. Thank um, you for yours. It's been lovely to talk to you. And uh, Okay, thank you so much. Bye. Too. <laughs> See ya. Leavers, I hope you really enjoyed that especially the people out there that want to write and don't know kind of where to start and don't know how and can't see a finished product at the end of the tunnel. So I think that was really great. Lindsay has very generously offered to donate two books to this pod for a giveaway. I'm no good at competition deciding where people lose and then I feel bad. So I'm going to make Lindsay decide the competition this time and I'll put in the promo. Thank you, thank you, thank you as always for all your support and the kind and generous words that you send in messages. Please keep them coming. Please keep liking, subscribing 
and sharing this with anyone that you think might benefit from it. That's the whole idea. And before I launch into my usual diatribe that sounds like a 12-step meeting again, uh, I was reading this week about why they get you to put the oxygen mask on yourself in the rare event of an air emergency. And it's basically because the cabin crew don't want a bunch of unconscious adults and toddlers screaming everywhere. So please understand that being kind to yourself is really important for everybody, not just you, but it also means not sacrificing yourself either. You've got to be as kind to yourself as you are told to be to others around you, hey. So keep doing that, keep leaving Hillsong, and we'll talk soon. Bye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.